has often occurred to me that conscious beings like you and me are aspects of the universe, looking back upon it. But in fact, I don't think we are. We are not really looking out at anything. Rather, we are looking in. The stars I see out there in the open heavens at night are not the stars at all. They are things in my mind, reconstructed from stimuli in my eyes, a composition of action potentials. I see them, too, in my dreams. Are there then stars in my dreams or only the firing of neurons? A breathtaking vista of stars requires no stars and no sky. It only requires a brain. Are we living in the matrix? I am, a matrix of axons and dendrites. I am not the same thing as my thoughts or as the things I see and hear. It has been my reasoning that these things, these contents of my mind, must be part of a common system of consciousness. That is, they must be a part of me for as long as they last. The contents cannot be broadcast to me from some non-conscious location. It is self-evident to me that I am a single, unified, conscious entity, and that different kinds of contents appear to me. In a sense, I share a world with these contents. They are my subjective world. I am alone in the room right now. I see shapes and colors and shadows that provide me a picture of an environment. I can hear sounds coming from downstairs, out of sight. But they, too, are inside of my world. It's all just for me. I am the one witness of the goings-on in this particular corner of space and time. Of what is my world composed? Let us leave aside for the moment contemplation of objective reality and consider in isolation this world of mine. I see places and things and people. I recognize many people and places. I associate them with memory traces and learned associations. I have a sense of secure expectation about causes and effects. I move through my world. I wander its landscape. I hear sounds, voices and noises. I recognize them, the voices and the noises. I've heard such things many times before. They too carry associations. They sound of a kind with other sounds, those that populate my memory. I look upon my world from the vantage point perched atop the shoulders of a human organism. I look out from its face. I operate limbs and a mouth, the muscles of the eyes. I manipulate the objects of my world with fingers and hands. They behave in particular ways. I point the eyes toward things which interest me. I seem to control this avatar. The avatar is in my world, too and I have come to think of it as me. My feet, my hands, my mouth, my eyes. This is my world as I perceive it, as I know it firsthand. But there is more to my world. There is a kind of weather, which I call mood. It lends a kind of tone to the way my world is, and the weather changes over time. I get feelings and thoughts. They come with variety. Thoughts and feelings have no specific place of residence on this landscape. They are everywhere and nowhere, but they are real, like an abstraction is real. The thoughts sometimes come in the form of my voice, but not really. I do not hear them, but only have their trace as if I had heard them, like hearing without sound. Sometimes the thoughts make reference to something out there on the landscape. Sometimes they refer to something that once was or might conceivably be. They are not on the landscape, but they still exist for a time in my world like ghosts. I have preferences for what I experience in my world. I like some feelings and sensations. I dislike others. I move preferentially toward the attainment of the feelings and sensations that I like.
In sum, I have a world with lawful contents, and I have values. I cannot make the things I see change their form. I cannot unhear the sounds of voices. I cannot control the thoughts and the feelings, though I often try. There are rules in my world, as there must be in the objective world. I live as if in my own dream, but one which persists and behaves predictably. There seem to be me and my world, two things, one contained in the other. But which is the container and which the contained? Am I inside my world, or is my world inside of me? I see an object over there. It is over there upon the landscape of my world and nobody else's. But I am not the object, and it is not me. If the object goes away, or if it never was, I am still present. What in my world is the relationship between me and the thing to which I bear witness? I am the subject. The thing is an object. There is, I think, also an objective world, a common universe with which each subjective world interacts. My world thus interacts by some means with this common one. It, too, is populated by things, and they, too, follow rules of behavior. The objective things interact in physical ways. Like explorers, we probe around in the subjective world trying to learn what it is and how it works. I wander with my avatar, the landscape of my own world, and accordingly I wander that other world. I cannot see the objective world, nor hear it. It has no sights or sounds to behold. I know what my body is like, what it looks like, how it feels to possess it, but I do not know what thing it really is out there in the objective world. I know the sights and sounds of my world, and I think they each correspond to some physical reality out there in the universe, but I know not what their natures are. How strange that we ponder the hard problem of consciousness when we ought to be pondering the hard problem of objective reality. A human being wanders a landscape alone. He sees colors and shapes and shadows. They form features and objects. He grows familiar with them and gives them names. He remembers the arrangement of features and develops habits of behavior. He hears the sounds of wind rustling leaves, of running water and chirping insects. He eats sweet fruits from the trees. He walks to the creek for cool water to drink. He is utterly alone. An insect moves along a log. He places his finger in front of it. It moves around the obstacle or crawls over his hand. It is clear to the man that he has causal power in the world. He can move things from place to place, even construct a grassy roof to lie under and avoid the hot sun. But he is alone. The insects are not company to him. They are animate little objects in his environment to be observed by him, or eaten, or ignored. He alone is the subject. One day, as he is wandering, he encounters a creature, an animal of some kind. He approaches it, and the animal looks at him. Apparently, it sees him. He is astonished. How is this possible? Imagine you are such a man. You are alone in your own world. What would this encounter signify? Either this creature is an object that only seems to notice you, it is only your ov overly anthropomorphic imagination, or the creature is a subject too, and in its own view, you are but an object. Going a step further to make the point yet stronger, suppose you encounter another human being. This human person sees you and responds to you, and you respond to her. Has she come into your world? Okay, let's come back down to earth and think this through. You and I can sit across from one another and have a conversation. We can see each other and speak to one another. We can reach out and touch one another. I hear your voice, and you hear your own voice. 
The objective stimulus upon our ears is the same event, but as we have seen, that stimulus is not a sound. Sound is a product of the brain. The sound you hear is in your subjective world. I hear a sound also, but it is not the same sound. Rather, it is the one which, given a similar stimulus, is produced by my brain. I exist in a subjective world that is only mine, and you live in a subjective world that is only yours. I see the room from one vantage point, and you see it from another. My brain has constructed the room I seem to be in, and your brain has constructed the room you seem to be in. But somehow, we also occupy the same room. That is where the objective world comes in. If you exist as a subject, and I exist as a subject, and if we can exhibit causality upon one another's experience, then we must occupy a common space and time. You are an object in my world, I am an object in your world, and we are both objects in the objective world. What I have been contemplating in this episode is a different perspective on the normal way we think about ourselves and our environment, a phenomenal one, which shows the leap of faith we make, either by our nature or by our culture, to assume that there is an objective world which we share. This is faith, because we cannot possibly discover a piece of incontrovertible evidence that it is so. For all I know, there is no you. There is only me. I'm certain that there is me, but I could never prove it to you. If simple animal species are having conscious experiences, this thought must never occur to them. They have no innate theory of mind. There is only that one creature, from its own point of view, one subject, and a lot of objects. Nevertheless, we extrapolate that there must be an objective world that we both move about in, and we assume that the contents of our consciousness make reference to its features. This is sensible because we have so much agreement between us. Otherwise, a game of I spy would be pretty challenging, wouldn't it? Let's consider the chain of events which lead from something in the objective world to a content in my conscious mind. Let's have a visual experience, for example, light which is to say an electromagnetic phenomenon in the world physically interacts with the cells of my retina. Prior to that, the light has been bouncing around in the environment. It has been focused by the lens of the eye such that it has landed upon the retinal landscape. This kind of thing goes on continually with the array of cells there picking up an ongoing stream of electromagnetic data. Note that none of this has anything to do with a visual picture or with color or anything else. It's just physical events. The cells of the retina communicate to the brain proper by means of action potentials. Photoreceptors have particular properties which enable them to respond to particular wavelengths. There is a multicellular layer of, of cells which coordinately activate retinal ganglion cells. These retinal ganglion cells project into the brain where they form synaptic connections in the thalamus. Up to this point we have no visual experience, no image in the mind of any kind, and as far as we know, all of the action, all of the cause and effect that occurs from there comes in the form of intracellular biochemistry and cell-to-cell -cell signaling. All of that is necessarily occurring in space and time by physical means. There is no principal difference between the chain of events and that which occurs when one region of the brain communicates to another, say from one modular network to another, as is alleged by global neuronal workspace theory. We also know that most neurons in the brain do not contribute to conscious contents. This tells me that we have a system of neurons arranged in some particular way that has functional correlates of consciousness with all of its contents. What is the nature of these correlates? Given neural correlates of consciousness and realizing that subjective experience is undeniable, we have three immediate choices. One, there is only the subjective. 
If I conduct experiments on my brain and read out the results, all of this has taken place in my own subjective world. There is no objective brain, much less matter or energy or any other material thing. There is only mind. This is idealism. The idea is coherent, but in some sense inconceivable to me. Two, there are two kinds of worlds, the objective and the subjective the physical and the mental, or spiritual. These two worlds interact by one having some kind of causality on the other. For example, the nervous system gives rise to consciousness. This is one-way causality. In the example here, the mind would be an epiphenomenon. This is dualism. I totally reject this idea, at least as I understand it. 3. There is only one world, the objective, material universe, but a feature of something which exists in it is to have subjective experiences. This is the answer I favor. In the previous episode, I rejected as absurd the notion that would be a fourth option here, the one where there is an objective world, but no conscious experiences. There are conscious minds, just as there are individual organisms, like trees and sharks, and physical systems like stars and solar systems. I think minds are physical phenomena. They are causally integrated with the objective world, such that physical occurrences in the brain have causality on the mind, and mental occurrences have causality on the brain. Since consciousness makes a difference in the world, and the world makes a difference to consciousness, it must be a physical thing. It must have a definite identity in the universe. The hard problem of consciousness is to reveal that identity. My theoretical framework, the Temporally Integrated Causality Landscape, TICL, proposes that consciousness is a system of integrated causality. In my opinion, it coherently answers to the phenomena that I've been describing in this episode. Near the top of the episode, I said there seem to be two kinds of phenomenal things, the conscious mind and its contents. I am a conscious mind, and I experience all manner of contents. According to the TICL, a large system of integrated neuronal elements exhibit some measure of causality upon one another whenever we are conscious. I exist when this brain's cells are having cause-effect power on one another, and this is taking place across much of the brain right now. This is the conscious mind, me. Within that large system of elements, some groups are having an even higher level of cause-effect power on one another over a shorter period of time. In the TICL, I call them subsystems. I, the conscious mind, experience the subsystems as specific and meaningful contents. The neurons are not the physical things of which I am composed. The biomolecules which make up the neurons, lipids and synaptic proteins and microtubules, the RNA and DNA, these are not the physical things of which I am composed. It isn't the atoms or the subatomic particles. All of these are composed of matter. I cannot be identical to those things or else I would be conscious whether the neurons were active or not. The atoms in my brain now aren't even the ones that used to be in their place. Okay, how about functions? Am I the action potentials? Or the flux of ions across the membrane? These functions are just step-by-step -step events. My argument is that I, the conscious mind, am the causality across this system. Most causality is not conscious. It is not arranged in the way the thalamocortical brain is. It is feed-forward, like the photon stimulus of a photoreceptor in the retina. A, then B, then C, then D falling like billiard balls, each effect a subsequent cause in a series. Rather, I argue that the integration of this brain system causes A and B and C and D to be causes and effects entangled. 
Panpsychism seems to assume that no causality is necessary for consciousness. Consciousness is just a fundamental feature of physics. Why, then, am I not conscious all the time? I exist only in the intervals when the brain is functioning as it does when I am awake or dreaming. Notions of conscious atoms or conscious rocks are preposterous when you consider that even the brain is only sometimes producing consciousness. There is one panpsychist idea, though, which could follow from the TICL and other causal theories of consciousness. That proposal would have subjective experience be an intrinsic quality of all causality. This would be panpsychism because consciousness would be occurring all over the place, wherever one thing interacts with another in the universe. This thinking to me is misguided, but plausible, and utterly unfalsifiable. A simple instance of cause and effect would have none of the features of consciousness that we seek to explain. It would have no continuity, no meaning, no memory or context. It would come into being and dissipate at once. This phenomenon, if it really occurs, is an interesting possible explanation for the hard problem, but it is so reductionist that it becomes trivial. According to Philip Goff in Galileo's Error, the alternative is emergentist panpsychism. I am agnostic with regard to the panpsychist part of the story, but I favor emergence. Conscious being is emergent from a massive complex of temporally integrated causality. It is emergent because it is more than the sum of its parts. To be an emer emergentist panpsychist hinges on the conception that consciousness is already a thing prior to the integration of causality into a structure that produces a point of view upon meaningful contents. Right from the beginning, this is the consciousness I have sought to explain. Philip Goff writes, quote, Of all the theories of consciousness, emergentist panpsychism has the fewest problems of a theoretical nature. Indeed, arguably, this view faces only easy problems, by which I mean problems which we can in principle make progress on empirically. For the emergentist panpsychist, it is fundamental principles of nature that take us from micro-level consciousness to the consciousness of emergent complex systems. By definition, fundamental principles of nature cannot be explained. If they could be explained, they wouldn't be fundamental. They can only be described. And hence, the emergentist panpsychist can cut straight to the empirical task of trying to formulate and test various candidates for being the fundamental principles that link lower and higher levels of consciousness." Unquote. Despite that argument, Goff makes no commitment between reductionist and emergentist panpsychism. I cut the question at a different angle. I make no commitment at this point between emergentist panpsychism and simple emergence. Goff talks about lower and higher levels of consciousness. This distinction is at least plausible, but what if there is no consciousness at all below the emergent level? Just as there is no wetness inherent in two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen, wetness emerges at the molecular level and does not describe anything which occurs when further reduced. Koch uses the example of wetness too when he talks about emergence in his book, Consciousness Confessions of a Romantic Reductionist. On that topic, Koch writes, quote, Scholars argue that consciousness is an emergent property of the brain. This sentiment is widely shared among biologists. What exactly is meant by that? An emergent property is something expressed by the whole, but not necessarily by its individual parts. The system possesses properties that are not manifest in its parts. He goes on, quote, Understanding the material basis of consciousness requires a deep appreciation of how these tightly meshed networks of millions of heterogeneous nerve cells weave the tapestry of our mental lives. To visualize the brain's staggering complexity, recall those nature specials where a single propeller airplane captures the immensity of the Amazon by flying for hours over the jungle. 
There are about as many trees in this rainforest as there are neurons in your brain. The morphological diversity of these trees, their distinct roots, branches, and leaves, covered with vines and creeping crawlers, is comparable with that of nerve cells as well." Unquote. Galileo said that the universe is written in the language of mathematics, that its characters are triangles, circles, and other geometric figures. This is the objective view. The universe is a coordinate plane upon which the geometric figures are laid out. What are we, then, but complex geometric figures? Polygons upon the coordinate plane. We view the plane not from the top as drawn upon a sheet of paper, but from the spatial and temporal coordinates where we find ourselves. And we cannot know the coordinate plane or its figures, but by looking within ourselves upon the changes that manifest in us when our polygon has crossed borders with other geometric figures and perturbed the lines and angles of which our worlds are composed. Mm -hmm.